are in the middle of an Acts series, and today's message is entitled, What a Riot, and it is from Acts chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them or your electronic devices or whatever that might be. There's also Bibles at the back, but I'll also have the text on the screen if you would like to read from there as well. Acts chapter 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of the people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. So Paul's apparently doing a great job there. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Let me just stop right there. Um, That's actually what um, idol can mean, right? It's no god. And this is not new in Paul's day. This this issue of worshiping something made by human hands stretches all the way back um, to the book of Genesis. And in fact, um, in Joshua at the end, it says that Abraham's own family were idol worshipers. Uh, Ezekiel calls idols literally in the Hebrew dung balls. Uh, They are made out of, like he describes them as human excrement. Ezekiel's a little bit colorful. And um, so he's like, you are worshiping dung balls, right? Um, And you can hear that with the euphemism for dung, and that would be appropriate in the biblical Hebrew. Um, So in this moment... um, Even in Jesus's day and just after, there's a lot of discussion about idol worship, right? The prophets rail against this. This is part of the problem. And now we still have this cropping up here in Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey in the city of Ephesus where people are upset that Paul is saying, apparently, those are no gods. Those are idols. This is not a new thing. Paul is echoing a very long tradition where even Abraham was called out of his land and told, get up and go, go after me, get up and get going, to be to a place where this won't, where I can be a God that can't be seen, right? That can't be made into, into something. There is a danger, it continues on in books of Acts, there's a danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, Demetrius says, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and that the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him in. And even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to go into the theater, not to venture into the theater. And the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. He's got a nice Greek name, Greek Greco-Roman name. Let's push him up front. And they shouted instructions to him. Say this, say that. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is what they just do for two hours. I, just for a second, can you imagine doing anything 
like that with that for two hours. <laughs> I was like, all right, that was, was like five minutes, right? Have you ever been to a sporting event where they do the wave and you're like, seriously, how many more times does it have to go around, right? Or if you, were, if you went to like Jesus camps when you were kids, did you shout, um, we love Jesus, yes, we do, we love Jesus, how about you? And that have to like go back and forth. And I was always a kid going, okay, I, I love him, but if I don't stand up and shout that for the 50th time, is that going to be... All right, you need to stand back up. Okay, so they were so worked up that for at least two hours, they're shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk comes out and quiets the crowd and says, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Isn't that convenient? Um, Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. I just want you to hold on to that. The city clerk says that they did not say anything against Artemis. They have not blasphemed their goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let's be orderly people. Calm down, right? Um, they can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. We're not savages here. We're in the Greco-Roman Empire, right? Um, as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what is happening today. And in that case, we would not be able to account for all this commotion since there's no reason for it. And after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So I guess he's like, and scene. I will exit stage left after a three-hour riot. So what a riot. What is happening? Well, let's just kind of first locate ourselves in the geography of the ancient world. Um, Here we have a lovely metro map for you to follow. Um, And of course, here's Spain and here is Rome. And if we zoom in a little bit, Rome, Ephesus, Alexandria, and Jerusalem, just to give you some sort of scope of scale as to where we are. Alexandria is in Egypt, and Ephesus was one of the three largest cities of the Roman Empire. First Rome, then Alexandria, then Ephesus. So this is happening in a very large, metropolitan, huge area of Paul's day. It's not some backwater place. Um, if you would take that wonderful, like, Via, de, via uh, Maris, the way of the sea, this blue line from Alexandria, you can get up towards Caesarea Maritima and get over to Jerusalem a little bit or keep going all around. So you can kind of see where Paul, the Jew, who spends a lot of time in Jerusalem, right, and is first encountered there in our story, can get around throughout this Roman Empire via all of this huge Roman Empire roadmap. And um, as you again look, if you can pull sort of even further out, you can see that people are going, the Roman Empire is stretching all the way up to what we today call Great Britain. There's a Hadrian Bridge there, all of those places. So Roman Empire is massive, but this is one of the top three cities, Ephesus is, of the Roman Empire. Now, in Ephesus, there was this beautiful harbor where still today cruise ships dock, and you can see people coming off the cruise ships and going into the ancient ruins of Ephesus. They have harbor, bathhouses, gymnasiums, lecture halls. There's a library. There's a synagogue. Um, according, we haven't found that archaeologically yet, but according to our text, there's one. Um, there's fountains and marketplace, and there's an agora, an open-air marketplace. Um, temples to Artemis, Domitian, Hadrian. Isis, and there's homes that are inside these terraced hillsides. This is a really beautiful city. 
And from a distance on the sea, you would look towards it and want to head that way. From the time of Augustus, there were dwellings of wealthy Ephesians throughout in these terraced hillsides, decorated with beautiful frescoes, mosaics, luxurious bedrooms, bathrooms, kitchens, bathrooms, bathrooms, not outhouses, bathrooms, right? So really luxurious place. And later on, if you get a chance, you can kind of see, but there's like um, human imagery painted in all of this. It is quite beautiful. Here's an archaeologist's um, illustration of what these feasts would look like and how the wealthy would live in this city. Um, Here is a picture which is from the library of the second century CE, so just after the time of Paul, but quite extensive and expansive. And here is what was then considered one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple to Artemis. So if Ephesus is known for its Artemis temple, it's known for its worship of this goddess. And as people would come for these festivals, I mean, scholars suggest just that thousands and thousands are coming into this already very large city of upwards of 200,000 people in this city and in this locale, um, that scholars are suggesting the city would just sort of flood forward with that huge festival every year for this festival of Artemis. Now you can imagine that if you were a person like Demetrius who is selling small little you know, Artemis figurines, You're, you make good money whenever this festival comes to town. It's quite impressive. Here's a gander at what she looks like. Isn't she pretty? Okay, we're going to call those things on their chestal area eggs. Um, that's because we don't actually know what per se they are, but this is from the first century. And Artemis, also known as Diana, she would, that would be the, more the Roman um, goddess, and Kibbola from the ancient Hittite goddess, like Mother Earth, Mama. Um, she was known as the goddess of the moon, the goddess of fertility, the protector of virginity, and also hunter of small animals, because those things typically, I guess, go hand in hand. Um, And she was the goddess of proper childbirth, which meant that you could sort of try to pray to her, ask her if you were concerned. You know, infant mortality rate being very high, people weren't naming their children for about a week or two into their life. Um, Most, pretty much one out of two children would die by the age of 10. You wanted to be in a place where you could feel like you had some protection and some comfort in the midst of all of this. So as a result, when they would have these huge Artemis festivals, which were quite um, extravagant, and there was um, a lot involved in the festival that we're not going to get into entirely today, but let's just say um, you wouldn't want to be there, nor would you want anyone who you love to be there, as they're participating in a whole bunch of fascinating stuff. This is at the heart of this culture of Ephesus. This is right in the middle of the city. And here's the theater. Now, this is an artist's rendition, but here's what you can see today. Right looking out as the harbor would come in, massive parades coming down, celebrating all of the culture of the Roman world, of emperor worship, of Artemis worship, and of everything else in between. Now, This is today's picture, and you can see how large that theater is. And the book of Acts is telling us that the entire city basically shows up, jams into this theater, and shouts for three hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They are so worked up by what Paul and the followers of the way are doing. There has been a great disturbance caused by the followers of the way. Now, in the ancient world, in the Roman time, in the first century, Judaism was not 
um, celebrated amongst the Romans. I don't know if you're cleanly aware of that or not. But they were often, Jews were often referred to as atheists because they didn't worship every god. They worshiped one god and one god only. So that charge of atheism was against them often. Will you worship the emperor as you come into the Agora marketplace? Will you take the sign of the emperor Domitian on your hand or on your head and show everybody that you have done that worship and declaring that Domitian is God, Lord of Lords, King of Kings? Will you declare that so that you can buy and sell in this marketplace? So maybe some way people say, yeah, I'll, I'll worship Domitian, I'll offer up the incense, and I'll come through the gate, and I'll get it on my hand and see I'm really proud. But some people are really zealous for the emperor worship of the day, put that mark right on their heads, trying to buy and sell and, and be part of this larger emperor worship, Artemis worship, cultic practice of this ancient world. So how does a tiny illegal religious movement from Judea threaten this giant political economic engine and cause a three-hour riot. How is that happening? And are there lessons to learn from what Paul and the followers in Ephesus are doing and how they're living and what they're teaching, this, this early movement of Jesus, that we should apply today? I mean, are we living our lives? Is, is this movement, as we follow this radical Jewish rabbi, Messiah, Jesus? Are we living in such a way to cause people to riot for three hours and shout that instead their way is better? So let's start at least back up in Acts 19. So here's a bit of our timeline. Prior to this in the book of Acts, Paul's moving around a lot. He goes in, he preaches a bit, he says something. Hey, you guys should follow Jesus. People decide to follow Jesus. He baptizes them in the spirit baptism, and then he moves on. And then he's left with a whole bunch of churches in his wake that are then chaotic. Corinthians, stop doing that thing with the stepmother. So he has to write all these letters to sort of fix it back up. But by the time Paul gets to Ephesus, something seems to maybe have changed in his approach because he stays here for three years. So he arrives in Ephesus and he meets some followers of John the Baptist. They say, we're baptized under John the Baptist. He's like, that's a baptism of repentance. You really need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And he baptizes in the name of Jesus and the spirit falls upon them and they prophesy and they speak in tongues and about 12 men are filled with the Holy Spirit. So you're getting this picture of like, ah, maybe Maybe Paul is starting to go, oh, yeah, Rabbi Jesus, I should probably follow what he did. So maybe I'll stay here for about, oh, I don't know, three years and work with these 12 people, um, as well as all the others that are following, including Priscilla and Aquila and others that are following in this area. So Paul then goes and speaks in the synagogue there for about three months about the kingdom of God. He's not entirely well received. Um, and so he moves along to the lecture hall of Tyrannus and leads discussions there daily for two years. And it says in our text that all Jews and Greeks hear the news. They hear about this kingdom of God. They hear about this way of Jesus. And they are, whether they're interested or not, Paul is probably trying to convince them. And he's present in that community for upwards of three years. Now, miracles are happening. People are amazed at what's going on. They start taking Paul's handkerchiefs and touching other people with them so they can get miracles too. Some people are like, hey, that looks interesting. Let's make that magic work for us. And then they try to co-opt that power. It doesn't work well. You can read about that. Um, so they end up getting really beaten up by an evil spirit and having to sort of run and flee naked. Um, and so that causes some fear to come into the community. And now, though, the name of the Lord Jesus is in high honor. That's all what's happening leading up to then this passage in Acts 19. 
Now, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks in Ephesus about that type of power, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, silver coin equaling about a day's wage. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now that's what leads up to Demetrius going, we have a problem. Right? Because if... Even if Paul and the followers have not blasphemed Artemis, and that's what our text says, that's what the city clerk says, according to the text, he's not said anything about Artemis. Something about what he is doing and what he is teaching and how people are living causes people to bring forth their old ways and burn them and start a new way. So what do we immediately discover I would say Demetrius probably has a legitimate complaint, right? He's probably watched his marketplace influence diminish, and he's seeing that things aren't looking good. So he is concerned about economics. And because economics, money, and religion, and power often mix together, and that all influences our family life and how we live and how we work, how we marry, how we raise our children, what type of people we allow to work in our home, how we treat them, all of those things mix in are things that are starting to influence the people who are listening to the way. Now, even today, and and Kevin and I have been to Ephesus a couple times, and when you walk down the street in Ephesus, you can still see people making shrines to Artemis, making the figurines. You can still buy them today. And figurines of other things that you would not uh, want to see or let your children see. In fact, uh, when we were there one time with our mentor, there was a pottery workman, and what they do with the tourists... I'm just warning you all, if you ever go to Ephesus, just don't play the game, okay? So what's going to happen to you? You will be sitting there, and the the pottery workman will say, guess what I'm making? And uh, they'll be like, is it a teapot? Is it a vase? Is it a a long, tall vase? And it goes on for a while um, until they embarrass all of the tourists that are there with what they're actually making, which is uh, something interesting. Let's just say it's a galulim. It is what Ezekiel refers to as a dung ball. So um, that is what is happening. Some an idol worship that is happening in that place. And all of that fertility stuff is still present there today in, in a way in which you get to buy and sell as you're walking down the street corner. So what was it specifically that caused people to be interested in this movement? And then how were the followers of a way, how were they living in such a way that was causing a problem? Well, let's just start with the concept of children. So for those of you who might have read or heard some of Jesus's teachings on children, tell me what you remember Jesus saying about children. Let the children come to me, right? So it wasn't a, um, they should be seen and not heard sort of situation, was it? In fact, some scholars would say, uh, William Barclay says it would not be wrong to suggest that the child was the most important member of the Judah the Jerusalemite, the Jewish community of the first century. Children were central. Uh, Josephus says that we will not cease educating our children, even for the destruction of the temple. 
If the temple has been destroyed and we need to rebuild it, still we don't have to worry about anything. Everything will proceed on as long as we can still hear the chirping of the children memorizing their text in our schools. That the child is the most important member of that community. Now, how were children treated in Ephesus, in this Greco-Roman world, where we actually have a gynecologist named Seranus of Ephesus. He was concurrent in the first century, and he wrote a several-volume treaty. It's really not necessary to read on uh, gyne- gynecology and how to treat women, and um, and how and, and some of this stuff. You're like, oh, that's that's some improvement. And then other stuff, you're like, that's that's horrible and wrong. And one of his chapters is entitled "How to Recognize a Newborn Worth Rearing." This is a quote. Now, the midwife, having received the newborn, should first put it upon the earth, and having examined beforehand whether the infant's male or female, and should make an announcement by signs, as is the custom of women, should also consider whether it's worth rearing or not by the fact that it's perfect in all its parts, members, and senses. So there's an actual document from a medical professional of that day in Ephesus that says when a child is born, you examine that child. Let me tell you about how to examine that child. And then you can determine whether or not the child is worth rearing. Should you keep this child? Scholar W.V. Harris in 1994 wrote for a scholarly publication about child exposure in the Roman Empire, and he says this, The exposure of infants very often, but by no means always, resulted in death, which was widespread in many parts of the Roman Empire and was inflicted on large numbers of children whose physical viability and legitimacy were not in doubt. It It was much the commonest, though not the only way, in which infants were killed. And in many... Perhaps most regions, it was a familiar phenomenon. While there was some disapproval of child exposure, it was widely accepted as unavoidable. Some, especially Stoics, disagreed, as did contemporary Judaism, insisting that all infants, at least all viable and legitimate infants, should be kept alive. Exposure served to limit the size of families, but also to transfer potential labor from freedom to slavery. Disapproval of exposure seemed slowly to have gained ground, and after the sale of influence was authorized by Constantine, isn't that good news, in 313 CE, the need for child exposure somewhat diminished and at last, probably in 374, was subjected to legal prohibition, but it still did not cease. Child exposure, determining whether or not a child was worth rearing, was part of practical practice in Ephesus. Now, if you want a clue as to what Paul might have been teaching and how his teaching and the followers of the way might have heard this to be a little bit different, let's open up to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul starts out his letter like this. After he is gone, he's in prison, he's writing back to this community in Ephesus. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul takes the entire ethic that Ephesus has surrounding children and their value, and he turns it on their head, on its head. He says, have you been allowing children to be birthed and then determining whether or not that child's valuable? And then if you don't think that they're valuable, you toss them on the garbage heap right outside of the city gate so that people can then pick through 
and determine whether or not that's a child worth rearing. Uh, well, this child, uh, you know, they're missing a finger, but they'll probably still be a good slave. I'll pick that child up and I'll raise them in my household as a slave, not as a free man, but as a slave. So some children just left to die and others picked out for their viability as labor in your home. That's the world Paul enters. Can you imagine this Jewish rabbi who had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who had learned from Jesus, right, from Jesus' disciples transferred down, walking into this place and going, but wait, wait, wait. The child's the most important member of our community. The child has the most value. All human life is valuable. And yet here I am in a society that looks upon a child and determines whether or not that child is worth having, worth keeping, worth rearing. By the way, women had no voice in this at all. If you birthed this child and you were in love with this child, you did not get to say that you wanted to keep it. It was the father that would determine whether or not that child be raised in that home. Do we have enough money? Can we continue to have the expanse of our wealth shared between three children? No, let's, is it a boy? Is it a girl? And you would determine whether or not that child was wearing, do they have a, do they have a skin demarcation? Do they have some, do they have a club foot? Is there something wrong with this child? Toss him on the heap. And Paul steps into this and he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. You've been predestined to be in God's family and you have been adopted, not as a slave, but as a child, as a son, as a daughter in this kingdom. That teaching subverts an entire economic system. That teaching changes who comes into your home and what value they have. So two weeks ago, I was with somebody who's, um, who doesn't happen to be a Christian. And I just say that because I, I was so stunned by the response. And we're sitting there in, in front of my kid. Um, the kids are playing. And um, she says knowing full well that Phoebe is adopted, right? She says, um, yeah, I talked to my pediatrician about it. My pediatrician just said, this is in Palo Alto. My pediatrician said not to, not to worry about adopting a kid because, you know, he's just never seen it work out. I, I'm sitting there stunned because you, I'm sorry, first of all, wait, what? Who said this? A pediatrician? And, and then you're repeating it and you're repeating it in front of my kid. Now, I have so many problems, right? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be calm. I'm shocked. I can't quite figure out what the nice response is. And, and I'm trying to make sure that my daughter doesn't hear me and all the chaos in the midst of that. And, and I'm thinking to myself, besides just the ugliness of that, how much the way of Jesus has caused me to think differently about life. How much passages like this have caused me to realize that it is a privilege to be adopted myself into God's kingdom. That it is a privilege to be called daughter or son or brother or sister. At last week, Kevin was here praying and he said, uh, brothers, God, is pray for my brothers and sisters. And our daughter's in the front row and she goes, why is daddy talking to all those people? They're not his brothers and sisters. And I was like, yes, now we can explain the family of God. Right? We are all brothers and sisters. This is this good news that is being subverted by followers of the way. Can you imagine there's a, there's a movement here modern day called Foster the Bay. They're saying if one family from every church would just foster one child, bring one child into their home, and then that church would just support that family. 
that the entire foster system in the Bay, all the kids would be in homes. So we have, that is a Christian movement. That, now, I'm not saying we're all called to do that, and I think that is a, a, a challenging move. Like, you, you have to know that you're called. But if you did it in the support of a larger community, we'd sure be more successful. But even just the value behind that, right, to say, this is, this is worth doing. This child is worth rearing simply because they are made in the image of God, not because I read in some book about how to identify a child worth rearing. What a luxurious statement that pediatrician in Palo Alto says. What a luxurious statement to say, oh, I've just never seen that work out. Also false, because I'm sure that pediatrician has an iPhone and Steve Jobs is adopted. All right. So I think it's worked out. How did this impact? How did Paul's teaching impact women? How did followers of the way start to understand, wait a second, here's this movement coming in. And yes, we've got this cult worship with Artemis. And yes, we've got this sort of Amazonian myth that's there. And you can read and study all about this interesting stuff and and all of this stuff. But essentially what we're talking about in the Greco-Roman world is women not being in charge of their own lives, a very strict patriarchal culture. Now that is also true in Jesus's day. But Jesus and others were making these redemptive movement steps so that we have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is a term used for rabbis. We have Martha there as well. We have Susanna and Joanna, Unia. We have Priscilla. We have Dorcas. We have, or Tabitha, if you prefer that for your daughter's name. We have um, Phoebe, a deacon in the church, a prostatis, a leader. Paul is working with all these women. Now, now you'll say, yeah, but Paul says some tough stuff about women too. Yeah, yeah, but in this world, his movements are forward. Because Paul will say the first egalitarian statement that we have, in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Gentile or Jew, right? There's no division here. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And he starts to break down all of these barriers that people are participating in. So all of us like to go straight to Ephesians 5 and say, hey, this is a really uncomfortable verse for me. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And everyone who wants to throw that at me to talk about, you know, whatever, how my marriage should function or, or whether I should preach or whatever, I just want to show them the verse right before, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Sure, I'll submit. And it says, husbands, love your wives and submit too. Submit to one another. So Paul starts to talk about a life of humility, a life grounded in love, a life grounded in compassion, a life without any unwholesome talk, a life that is markedly different. And as Paul does this in so many other ways, it starts to subvert all of these systems, including the systems of politics and empire. Because when Paul starts to step into these places and he starts to say, there is only one God and he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And they will come to him and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as Paul teaches about who Jesus is and how he is alive and how he is present and at work in this world and how his power is real, he doesn't ever once have to say, Artemis isn't. He just keeps lifting Jesus higher. But Demetrius is paying attention. 
If everything, Paul, you're saying about Jesus is true, well, then that must mean that Artemis is no God. Yes, that's what that means. But I didn't say that. He doesn't have to. This is what is changing everything in that ancient world. It's this Torah. It's this book that is shifting and changing the way in which people are living. That word, the way, it, it can just mean, right, like sort of like a road, right? In, in, in the Greek, it just means that. But in the Hebrew, there is a connotation to when people would look at God's text and try to decide how to live that out, they would say that that is halakha. It's how to walk out the text. Okay, so God says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. What does that mean, halakhically speaking? Halakha. What is the halakha of that? Well, it means don't walk this far, walk this far, don't light a fire, don't do this, don't do that. And then you figure it out. How do I walk out these truths? This is the way. It is the way of walking. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must walk as Jesus walked. That's not about like, did he, you know, have like a little stride or story. It's about how did Jesus interpret this text so that we can walk it out. We can walk this out in our life. Ephesians 5. Follow God's example, right? Walk the way God is walking. Therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in the way of love. So what is this disturbance that is being caused by followers of the way? It is walking in love. It is walking in a radical, revolutionary system of belief that believes that Jesus is love. Jesus is God. God is love in all of that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him doesn't experience death but lives. It believes that we are going to pour out our lives in love, loving God, loving our neighbor, and yes, even loving our enemies. Jesus tells us to do that. That is the way of Jesus. It means that as your enemies are driving nails into your hands and your feet on the cross, Jesus says, here then too, you say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is walking out the way of love and it flies in the face of every system of power, of familial structure, of religious life that is present in Ephesus. Everything is being turned upside down. Demetrius is right. He has a reason to be concerned. Everything's changing because of this way. Now, Jesus' followers didn't build a temple in Ephesus. You don't get to go there today and say, hey, here's where the followers of Jesus met. We don't have such a building. They didn't put into, a, into effect a priesthood in Ephesus. They didn't do any of those types of things. They didn't start new currency with the image of the God. They didn't do any of those power systems that you'd expect. They simply lived differently according to the way, and it changed everything in their world. They didn't protest. They didn't have good theological debates out front to say, Artemis stinks, let me tell you why, right? They didn't have um, big you know, wonderful banners out there telling us about all the things that God hates or all the things that God loves. Um, they didn't wear nice little bracelets necessarily said, what would Jesus do, right? None of those things were there. They didn't protest. They didn't demonstrate. Now, I'm not suggesting that there isn't a time to do that, but in this case, they simply lived the way. 
And that was quite enough. So much so that it caused people to riot for three hours. Now, for me personally, it is much more easy and immediately gratifying to just protest, right? It's easier for me to rally, paint my sign, find a fun slogan, tweet, post something on Facebook, um, take my stand for the moment while I sit in the comfort of my own home, right? I can shout, I can argue, and I can take the moral high ground and click on the next thing. But living the way is much harder. I have that Hamilton lyric that Washington says, right? Dying is easy, living is harder. Living this way of Jesus is much more difficult. It is not easy. And I'm failing it all the time. But it turns out that a community of people who together, if we together look to one another and we say, okay, what is this way? And how do we follow Jesus? And how do we live this out in our community? Can it be so cleanly and clearly, authentically lived out in this community, this way of love that we can walk in, this way of Jesus, that we can cause a revolution? that we can cause a riot because that was the reason for this riot. Years of living this out caused everyone to realize how revolutionary the way of Jesus is. Paul was there for three years before this event happened. It wasn't a moment. It wasn't one sermon. It wasn't one message. It's the cumulative events of over three years of that entire community changing how they buy, how they live, what they buy, what festival they go to, where do they, how do they respond to all of the politics and the religion and the powers and that nationalistic religious empire that Rome had effectively built? What caused all of that to crumble? Because this is the temple of Artemis today, that seventh wonder of the world that everyone went from all over to see. They had a reason to riot. But the followers of the way, and here we are, and and we meet in space that we rent in a synagogue, bless God, like how God is so gracious to us. And we come to this place, but we don't have a building that you can come and visit. We don't have a, we barely have a sign up front. (laughs) We we don't have an office where you can come and and find me. I mean, you can just, I'll meet you in a coffee shop anytime. We don't have, in fact, the other day I said, Phoebe, look at that really beautiful building and see the big steeple. It's called a steeple on top and see the cross. That's a church. She said, no, it isn't. <laughs> yes, yes, it's a church. We have to take you to another building sometime. Um, so, but, but this movement of Jesus persists and moves on because it is focused on the teachings of Jesus, on the way, on how we love, on how we compassionately walk in this way of Jesus. This is what causes the riot. My prayer is that in the midst of all of our chaos, in the midst of all of the things and the pressures in our life that are trying to tell us, this is the way of Jesus, it looks like this, or it comes with power, or it comes with wealth, or it comes with uh, harsh statements or bullying or whatever it is. No, 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 no. We go back to this way. This is the thing. Not... I'm I'm really, there are hard days, aren't there, where I just want to stand up and start screaming, that's not the way of Jesus. And I see somebody posting something, sharing something, speaking something, and I just want to shout, that is not the way of Jesus. And it's easy for me to shout that, right? It's easy for me just to get angry in that moment and flail about and shout it. But this event in Acts chapter 19 
tells us to double down on the way of love. That if we simply live out the way of Jesus and we live it out obediently in these truths, all of these other things will crumble without us having to say a word. Now, it's not to say that people won't notice that it's happening and have a riot for three hours. But could you imagine if people had a riot about something wonderful and loving that Spark was doing for three hours, but then when they got up there, the city clerk had to say, but they never said anything against us. They never said anything against our way. They just kept lifting Jesus higher. They never argued us out of our way. They never blasphemed our way. They never blasphemed our God. They never told us they were wrong with their many words. They just kept lifting Jesus higher. They just kept doubling down on the way of love. They just kept walking in compassion and grace and mercy. They just kept living so differently that we were just attracted to that and the power of Jesus in that place. I want more of that. I want the followers of the way to cause a disturbance. I want to be part of that. But I want it to happen for all the right reasons. Because when we live into the truth of this love and this way of Jesus, then the emperor is not on his throne anymore. And Jesus is. And we live according to that. Everything changes. Let's pray. Jesus, would you please help us to lift you higher? Help us to learn how to love like you love, how to forgive like you forgive. Jesus, teach us as the followers of your way. Teach us how to live according to your teachings that we might see more of your kingdom come here on earth and that people would be attracted by that and, yes, even disturbed by it and curious. Teach us, Jesus, in your name. Amen.